This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urit moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative at Harvard. I'm your host, Eric McNulty. From flu to unusual threats such as Ebola, to the possibility of a chemical, radiological, or other unconventional attack, public health leaders sit in a unique perch in the world of emergency preparedness and response. They must be familiar with a complex array of possible threats, and when an incident occurs, skillfully lead their peers, political officials, and the general public who may not fully understand the threat and its consequences. Joining us today is an expert in this area, Dr. Suzette McKinney. She's joining us by phone from Chicago. Suzette is the CEO of the Illinois Medical District. She's also program faculty here at the MPLI, as well as an instructor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And she's the co-author of a new book, Public Health Emergency Management, A Practical Approach for the Real World. Suzette, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Let me start by asking you something rather basic. What exactly is public health emergency preparedness and what should we be preparing for now? Sure. So public health emergency preparedness is very simply the ability to prepare for, protect against, respond to, and recover from any public health emergency that a community could potentially face. So it is the process of understanding what types of emergencies and disasters a specific community might be more prone to, and then planning for response to those emergencies and having the ability to recover from them. In terms of what we should be preparing for now, we should be gaining an understanding of any type of emergency or disaster that is quite likely to happen in the communities where we live. So, for example, if it is the springtime or the fall and you live in a state like Florida that's prone to hurricanes, you want to ensure that you are prepared for hurricanes. But we're currently in the winter season, so winter storms, particularly severe winter storms, are one of the types of emergencies that we should be preparing for now. But in general, members of the public and emergency management practitioners, as well as public health and healthcare practitioners, should maintain an ongoing knowledge of the types of emergencies that their communities are more prone to and be preparing for all of those. When I think of hurricanes and winter storms, I don't typically think of those as public health threats. So how do you put the public health lens on a general disaster, like, like a nat- any natural disaster? Sure. So I always use real world examples that people have experienced or have at least heard about to help them understand some of these strategies and processes that we should be engaging in. So if you think about a large hurricane, and late last fall, we had Hurricane Harvey to hit Texas and the Gulf Coast. And one of the things that we traditionally see in hurricanes is a lot of flooding. And along with flooding comes water that is standing water for prolonged periods of time. 
So one of the aspects of public health and health care that is associated with a hurricane would be um, the spread of disease as a result of standing water. We know that mosquitoes congregate around pools of standing water, and those mosquitoes are typically disease-carrying mosquitoes. If you're living in a climate where the weather is particularly warm, then you're concerned about things like West Nile virus and Zika virus as subsequent aspects of the hurricane and the flooding that took place. So that's one area where healthcare is infused into the emergency response. But in more general terms, if you think about any emergency in terms of people's ability to access healthcare or to receive any care that they need, that's generally where the health aspects come in. And then, of course, if we're looking at something more intentional, such as a biological attack or a chemical attack, then the health aspect would be ensuring that persons who are affected by that particular organism or chemical agent can receive the life-saving medications that they need as a result. So as a leader, how have you worked to ensure that public health considerations are integrated into the overall emergency response plans and capabilities of any given community? And you've worked on the ground in Chicago, you've worked with people elsewhere. How have you made sure that public health has a voice at the table? Well, one of the first things that I've done is ensuring that not only myself, but my team members, my peers, and even my superiors understand that as public health officials, what are the specific public health roles and responsibilities in any given emergency or disaster? Because what I have found is that when public health is trying to get that seat at the table, one of the first things that's critically important is knowledge and credibility. And so when we come to that table with other leaders and other stakeholders, one of the things that they will be looking for is whether or not the public health official is credible. And so the first thing that ensures that we have that level of credibility is understanding what our role is, understanding what the public health and the healthcare consequences are, and then finally, being able to articulate our role and those consequences, as well as what actions we need to take in order to mitigate those consequences. And in my experience, what I have found is that when public health comes to the table with that knowledge and that information and the ability to clearly articulate not only what our responsibility is, but also what it is we need to be doing to help mitigate the emergency, that goes a long way. And then subsequent to that, we need to be able to communicate effectively with regards to any resources or assistance that we need from those other stakeholders. And of course, if there are resources and assistance that we as public health can offer to our stakeholders in order for them to exercise or execute their role, then that's important as well. And I think when we are able to communicate those things, what begins to happen is all of the stakeholders sitting around the table begin to see and understand how we can all work together to more effectively mitigate that emergency or that disaster event and respond as a group of public safety experts and officials. And so what, part of what I take from what you just said is that 
public health needs to be at the table, not just during the response, but during planning, during the exercises, during the drills, to make sure that everyone understands what the role they can play is and what the consequences are if they don't have public health considerations taken into account when they put together their plans and their response protocols. That's absolutely correct. I often say that preparedness is a journey. It's not a destination. And that journey starts in the planning phase. And as we've seen through recent disasters, it is that the public health issues become more important over time. So after you've sort of cleared away the flood water or you've put out the fire, that's when the public health piece uh, considerations emerge in a way that demands attention and certainly captures the attention of the public, the media, people who are not at home or whose homes have been damaged in, in ways that uh, require a different response. So it's good that Absolutely. you're doing this work to keep public health front and center. Absolutely. Now, one of the topics you cover in your book is community preparedness and recovery. Now, how do you as a leader, how do you bring those various stakeholders together? How do you find common ground and create unity of purpose? You know, that goes back to the answer that I gave to the previous question. You know, it's really helping other stakeholders that are around the table with us understand how much more of an effective response effort we can have if we are working very closely and in collaboration with one another. It's important, once again, to be able to not only articulate what the public health role is, but also be able to articulate the type of assistance and resources that public health can offer and bring to other stakeholders as they execute their role in the response effort. But one of the things that I've also done to try and create that unity of purpose and ensure that we establish that common ground is in peacetime, or in other words, during times when we are not responding to an emergency, to ensure that I am in constant communication with those stakeholders, that we are working collaboratively, whether we are conducting an assessment to ensure that we are focusing on the right hazards and disasters for our particular community or whether that communication and that collaboration is in the planning phase. But it's all about communication, effective communication, and constant collaboration. I have found that when you build that unity of purpose in the peacetime phase, then it makes the response time that much easier because the stakeholders know one another, they understand what one another's roles are, and they have a history of working together. And so there is a bit of a trusting relationship that, that exists. And so it makes the response effort go a lot more smoothly. Now, in, in the meta-leadership framework that we use here at the MPLI, we would talk about this as leading across and particularly beyond, so beyond the uh, public health silo. That's an area where you don't have much authority and you have to lead via influence. How do you exert effective influence as a public health leader? I know some could derive from scientific knowledge, but people aren't necessarily always happy to have a smarty pants scientist in the room. So how do you exert influence in a way that gets people to pay attention and follow your direction? You know, I think uh, one of the ways that I've been able to exert influence particularly among elected officials as well as political appointees, generally those are stakeholders that are not used to working in this type of environment. You know, they deal with crises every day, 
but typically not the types of emergencies and disasters that we think about in public health preparedness. And so in my work, what I've tried to do to ensure that I'm able to lead beyond my influence or beyond my authority, if you will, is helping them understand what the consequences of the emergency are, but then also I try to look at the emergency or the disaster from their perspective and help them understand what their constituents will be feeling and experiencing, but also what their constituents will be expecting of them and provide an analysis of this is the situation, this is what we need to do to address the situation, and then this is the anticipated outcome if we address the situation in the manner in which I've described. And essentially what I have found is that, you know, it really does help everyone, all of the stakeholders, whether they are political appointees, elected officials, or people from other organizations, other businesses or companies, it helps them understand what the common goal is. And I found that when they can see their component of that common goal and sort of where they fit in, but then how we all fit together to achieve the common goal, then that has really helped me in my practice build that common ground and also influence the way in which we approach an emergency response. Political appointees and elected officials are certainly a breed apart. They're obviously a very important part of any response. They often are the face of the response, yet they also don't necessarily understand the science. And that's understandable. That's not their world. But I recall back uh, to the Ebola outbreak here when the concern here in the U.S., not so much what was happening in West Africa, but there was a great deal of, of conflict between some of the public health professionals who were saying, you know, these are the conditions under which Ebola is something to worry about, and here's conditions where it's not. Uh, yet the, there was great concern in the public. A lot of the media politicians were sort of, you know, in an abundance of caution, we're going to ignore the science and do more which mm-hmm. in some situations is fine. In other situations, it can cause a lot of unintended consequences. Do you have a tip or two, a secret or two as to, as to how you've navigated that? Uh, because you're right. The political appointee, the, the elected official, they're worried about the optics. They're worried about how their constituents are going to perceive things. They worry about how it plays out in the media, which, again, is all valid from where they sit. But there are times when it's in conflict with what, the, the science would tell you to do on the ground. So how have you navigated that, uh, that tension? Well, you know, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Many times people don't understand the science. And so talking to them from a scientific perspective does not help the situation. And many times it actually can aggravate the situation. And so the way in which I've navigated those types of scenarios and situations is rather than talking about the science, addressing what's happening right now on the ground, what are people seeing, what are people feeling, and most importantly, how are people reacting? You know, are they frightened? Are they concerned? Are they angry? And if so, how do you address those specific feelings? So you use the example of Ebola and During that response here in Chicago, obviously, we were hearing concerns from multiple aspects of our community. And so from the healthcare perspective, 
many of our stakeholders were concerned about how do they provide care without themselves becoming ill. So for our healthcare stakeholders, we really had to do a lot of education around disease spread and how the disease is spread, what types of personal protective equipment should be worn to protect yourself. But then in addition to talking about it, conducting hands-on training with that personal protective equipment and actually showing people how to utilize the protective garments so that they could prevent becoming ill themselves. Now, from a public perspective, we had to educate people about the origin of the disease. If you were in your neighboring state, you probably don't have to worry about someone from that state infecting you. However, this is a disease that we're concerned about associated with travel from West Africa. So it was really a matter of helping those various stakeholders understand what was happening right then and there in front of them. What were they seeing? What were they feeling? And addressing those emotions and those feelings rather than talking more in scientific terms. I'm really happy that you touched on the, the emotional aspect of this because I think it's absolutely critical. And one of the things we talk about frequently at the MPLI is the notion of going to the emotional basement or when that amygdala hijack, that freeze flight fight response kicks in in response to a threat. And I've seen it happen to politicians. I've seen it happen to lots of people, including myself. And knowing how to get yourself and get others out of the basement is critical. And what you just described is exactly that, is, is acknowledging the emotions, understanding them, and giving people something to do to address it, to, to help restore their emotional stability. And that may Absolutely. be you know, g- giving them the facts, educating them. I also recall from the H1N1 response when another of our NPLI friends, Rich Besser, was acting director at the CDC, and he made sure to tell everyone to cough into their elbows which may yeah. seem silly. I mean, it's always good public health practice to begin with, but it gave people something to do. Uh, and I also recall in your education piece, I think it's also important for public health leaders to realize how little most people know. I recall during the uh, Ebola response, I was on a, a conference call talking to a number of business leaders, and we kept talking about West Africa, West Africa, West Africa. And one person jumped in and said, you realize West Africa is larger than the United States. And this really affects three countries. So you telling me that you're worried about all of West Africa is like saying, I can't go to California because you've had an outbreak in Rhode Island. And so everything from the geography to how the disease functions, how it spreads, all those things that you're really concerned about as a public health leader. So it would seem that part of your job is to be a translator between the highly scientific people that one community you have to have credibility with but also others who have, they figure they're doing pretty well with a, with a Band-Aid and, uh, you know, some basic first aid things, and they don't really understand public health. Is that right? That's right. That's absolutely right. You know, again, it's, it's like I said before, in these emergency situations, everyone's emotions are going to be running high, and many people will be fearful, and many people won't know what to do. And so, you know, it is about addressing the emotion being empathetic to how they're feeling, not necessarily trying to compensate and let them know or tell them that you understand how they're feeling, but just being empathetic and acknowledging that there are some emotions there. But then from there, 
helping them understand what you're doing and letting them know what they can do themselves. And I have found that in most cases, when people receive information about what's happening, they may or may not fully understand it, but they have the information at at hand and they have additional information about what they can be doing, it tends to distract them a bit from the fear and some of the other emotions that they're feeling. And so it helps give them something else to focus on other than the fear. And I think in the case of political officials, you're leading up in that case to your boss. It's a matter of of saving the boss from him or herself. Give them the information that will keep them from making a mistake just because they're, again, in a fear-based state or I don't fully understand what's going on. I I want to shift gears just a bit because you've been doing this for a while. And one of the topics you cover in your book is preparing future generations of public health leaders. So what are some of the critical lessons you've learned through your career that you want to pass on to the next generation? How do they they get to be the next Suzettes? (laughs) Well, one of the things that I would like to pass on to the next generation is really just being educated and being knowledgeable about, you know, the various types of disasters and what their specific consequences are. And I have found that that knowledge and that information really helps you identify what your actions, your mitigating actions need to be in order to effectively mitigate that emergency. So the first piece is educating yourself and having a level of understanding. The second piece is knowing who your stakeholders are, both your partners and professional stakeholders, as well as your community level stakeholders, whether those are individuals or families, block clubs or specific neighborhoods, but also the organizations and the leaders within those communities. Those could be faith-based leaders, they could be social leaders, various types of social clubs, whether it's a block club or a fraternity or sorority, but know who your partners and your stakeholders are and establish relationships with them in advance. But then moving beyond that, I think the next generation of leaders, if there's one thing in particular that I could impart, it is understanding the concept of meta-leadership. And I briefly touch upon meta-leadership in the final chapter of the book. And the goal there is to help future leaders, you know, understand some of the processes that you have to go through when you are leading in one of these types of situations. So understanding who you are as a person, but then also understanding and being able to articulate what the situation is. And then from there, being able to foster that unity of purpose and that consensus among all of the relevant partners and stakeholders with which you are working. The concept of relationship building cannot be highlighted enough. I have found in my work that relationships are the most critical component of every emergency response that I've ever worked. And that's because that those relationships help you establish trust. It helps you establish familiarity with your partners and stakeholders and in return, them with you. And it gives you sort of a foundation on which you are working together. And so 
that would be the one thing that I would probably want to impart the most on future generations of public health leaders. And just briefly, could you touch on uh, one or two of the the turning points in your career, the decision points where you had to go this way or that, and how you thought about it? Because you've, you've accomplished quite a bit in your years, and you're sure. not that old, but you've, you've done remarkable things. So how did you think through the career choices you had to make? One of the things that I've always wanted to do in my career, no matter what it was, was to make a positive impact on other people, especially people that perhaps did not have access to some of the same resources that I had access to. And so my career has always been guided by this sense of wanting to help others. But I think with regards to emergency response, what has always guided me is I try to put myself in the shoes of others. I think about members of our community that are more vulnerable than others of us. And, you know, just try to put myself in their shoes and have a sense of empathy toward how they might be dealing with the situation versus how I might be dealing with the situation, and then try to address those things. And so when I think about emergencies like H1N1. That was certainly a turning point in my career. And that's because H1N1 was the first emergency response that I led completely as the leader in my health department at the time. So it was the first emergency response that I was responsible for leading. And everyone was reporting to me in that response. And I remember having a conversation with my health commissioner and he said to me, I will be the face of our department. I will work with the media and ensure that the information that we're trying to get out to the public through the media, I will make sure that that's done. Your job is to manage the operational aspect of this response. And In the very, very beginning, you know, as soon as we had that conversation, I immediately went to the basement. You know, my fear took over and I didn't know what to do. So, you know, it took me a small amount of time to sort of snap out of that. And then once I did, what I was able to do was to, number one, rely on the training, all of the training and the exercising that we've been doing for years to prepare us for a major pandemic influenza outbreak, but then to layer on top of that some of the leadership training that I had undergone. And the meta-leadership framework and training had been some of the training that I had received. And so layering that on to my prior training and the prior exercising that we had done, but then also with every action, thinking about the impact to the community, but from the community's perspective. And I have found that in every response, whether I'm leading the response or just playing a role in the response, when you're able to look at a situation from the perspective of the community, it helps you better understand how the community will be impacted by the decisions that you make. And that's been very important for me as a leader and to try and guide my career in a manner that makes a positive impact on people's lives, which has always been my number one goal. 
Well, and that you certainly have done. And I, and I should say in, in full disclosure, you've mentioned it a couple of times on the program so far, but before you were faculty here, you were a student. And so we're especially proud that Correct. you came through the program first and have gone on to have such a tremendous impact in the area of public health. And now we get to teach alongside you, which is a distinct pleasure. I want to thank Suzette well, McKinney for joining us today. Once again, she's the co-author of a new book, Public Health Emergency Management, A Practical Approach for the Real World. You can find that on Amazon or wherever you get your public health books. And Suzette, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back with you next month for another episode of Leader ReadyCast. Thank you. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.